Welcome again to the Comic Book Historian Podcast. Today we're continuing our discussion with Danny Fingeroth. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host Jim Thompson. So Danny, last time we were talking, you were editing Spider-Man but also writing Darkhawk, and Darkhawk was under a different editor, is that right? Yeah, the policy at Marvel in those days was not only could staff people, not only were they allowed to do freelance work, but they were encouraged to do freelance work. So I was writing Dark Hawk, and let's see, the first editor I think had been maybe Greg Wright, and then it had been Howard Mackey, and then Nelson uh-huh. Yumtov. So yeah, it was right. the theory was that you couldn't be your own editor, but right. so somebody else on the staff would have to edit. Anyway, so that, that's how that worked. I know that's different from like the 70s when you know people like Marv Wolfman could edit and write, you know, like Dracula, for example. So was it weird for you to kind of have your own editor, but then you also edited other books. Uh, Did you ever disagree with their editorial decisions? It was a surreal kind of thing because, you know, it was that kind of classic comics industry incestuous kind of thing where you'd be editing somebody and somebody else would be editing. I guess when it was just sort of a cross, if the person you were editing was at the same corporate uh, structure level as you were, it was... It was generally not a big deal. I guess when it got weird would be when, say, you'd be editing somebody uh, much higher or much lower than you in the in the structure. So, and to his credit, say Tom DeFalco never pulled rank. Tom was in, in many ways the perfect freelancer. Not only would Tom not be a prima donna and not say I won't do this, I won't do that, but he was such a perfectionist that he'd often do his own rewrites before you even got to. Mm. edit the thing you know he was concerned for the quality of the of the story and so on but it, but it, it it's obviously there are potential pitfalls when the person who has the power to evaluate your job performance is suddenly not suddenly but is also someone working for you as a freelancer and in the history of comics this is pretty much starting with Martin Goodman you know hiring half of his relatives to be on staff, including Stan. I mean, I guess that whole thing of people having multiple and conflict, possibly conflicting relationships is pretty much a comic industry t- tradition. It could be weird, but I'd say most of the time it worked out. I would say there were never glitches or never, you know, I mean, that was, that was certainly a lesson to me when I went freelance for that period in in the late 80s mm-hmm. when I kind of, you know, saw that, I sort of took a calculated risk. I decided I wanted to do this. And, I, and, you know, I learned that just because someone is your friend and your lunch buddy and, and whatever doesn't necessarily guarantee they're going to give you work. That was a kind of eye-opening lesson in reality for me, you know. Well, although, although by the same token, I think there were also maybe, you know, assignments I got because I was somebody's buddy or, or, or somebody they'd known a long time. Probably similar to going into business with relatives, because comics, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s, was was very incestuous in the best possible way. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Incest in a good way. Yeah. The most positive form of incest. Um, as go. a southerner, I just want to speak up and say yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Jim knows about that. Did you have fun building the Dark Hawk character? That was a hell of a lot of fun. You know that. You know the character. You know came from like a skeletal outline that Tom DeFalco wrote. It was maybe three or four double-spaced type pages. And so the basic framework was there, but there was tons of stuff that needed to be filled in. And I remember developed a lot of it with Greg Wright. 
crew then. I think maybe he went freelance, and then it went to Howard. Yeah, it, it was it was it was a lot of fun because sort of I knew that the mandate was sort of Spider-Man for the '90s, you know. Right. Uh, so he was a teenage kid, and he even went to Midtown High, which which was still in Queens at that time. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if you know your New York geography, uh, you know Forest Hills is nowhere near Midtown. I was able to ring changes on the basic outline. So I think in the original outline, if you know your Dark Hawk, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but the original outline, it was sort of a classic comic book thing where his father gets killed um, right. when Chris finds the amulet. And so Chris vows to get revenge on the people who killed his father and on crime in general. So I, I was kind of proud of the different angle I brought to that where he actually saw what looked like his father taking a payoff from some uh, gangsters. I thought that that added an extra angle. Like here, his dad had taught him his whole life to do the right thing. Right. And then he sees his father taking a payoff, and then the guy disappears, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, spoiler alert, later on it turned out there was more to it than that. But I kind of patted myself on the back. I thought that was a clever thing to bring to it. It's like, here's this guy who instills me a set of values. Then, sort of, he you see him betraying them, those values. And then what do you do? How do you live your life? How, especially if you get an amulet that gives you superpowers. Right. right. I think that's actually, in a way, almost a classic Marvel thing where it's everything is not black and white, where, where suddenly there's this extra complication right. that happens in real life. I mean, how many times, you know, as you get older, you look back on your life or your parents' life or other people, you know, you go, okay, this person had this set of beliefs. Mm-hmm. But then they did this thing that really went against them. Why would they do that? What is it about real life that makes people have to compromise their beliefs? So I mean, I thought that was one of the things I'm proudest of of that series was that angle on it. And then, and then it was just fun, sort of building up the relationship with his family and with the kids at school and, and so on. I like I there was that one story. It's funny. Mike Manley has been posting some artwork on Facebook lately that reminded me of the story where there's like a big hostage situation at his high school and Chris Chris has to rescue the kids and so on. It was fun just to do a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So now as you're ending your run at Darkhawk, which was a long run, then this kind of goes into the end of your time at Marvel. You know, so some of the things that were happening at the time, there's a lot of weird corporate decisions being made. Marvel was declaring bankruptcy shortly after Mark Grunewald died from, a lot of people think, the stress and his heart defect that he was born with. And you leave Marvel around this time. So can you tell us about what led you to leave? Did you feel like the ship was sinking and it's time to leave? What what happened? Well, I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, when you, the way you just sort of gave that list, and if you look at a calendar, then, you know, your reading is valid and that a lot of these things sort of happened one on top of the other. In my experience of it was a lot more drawn out. In other words, you know, yes, between 94 and 96, looking back from the perspective of 2019, that's a short period. But when you're living it, man, oh, man, it seems to be taking a lot. Right. <laughs> it's slow motion, if anything. It's not, yeah. it's not speeded up. So a question that I sometimes get asked and that I'll ask myself here because I I think it's sort of it's relevant to what to is your question. Mm-hmm. You know, someone will ask me, "What was it like at Marvel in the '80s and '90s?" Which you know was a really general question, and and mm-hmm. generally I prefer more specific ones. But the answer I give is, we thought we beat the system. Right. You know, like if you look at the Marvel editorial roster from you know the mid whatever from 1980 to 1995. 
doesn't change a whole lot. You know, so there are some times where, where maybe if somebody leaves staff, they don't replace them. But, but Marvel was fairly stable in that period. Mm-hmm. And our joke used to be, boy, how badly they have to screw up to get fired in this place. I mean, people just, it seemed like a pretty secure thing. And it seemed like, especially you go, wow, we beat the system. I've been, we've been working, you know, say I, I or several other people of my generation or my era, we've been working here for 15 years and with editorial royalties and writers or, or artist royalties were, were earning like lawyers without having to go to law school. You know? yeah, I mean, that was, sweet. Yeah, but yeah, so we really thought we beat the system and then we realized we were totally deluding ourselves. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Because I think what had happened is that both Shooter and DeFalco saw a part of their mission as protecting their editorial staff from corporate ups and downs. You know, mm-hmm. So they saw themselves and acted as lead shields from corporate because i think i may have mentioned this last time which is a thing you know when you're a fan or when you're starting out in comics the editor-in-chief of marvel seems like you know like god manifest on earth you know what could be a higher position well it turns out the editor-in-chief of marvel is middle management you know right right right. there's numerous corporate levels uh, above that person so there was the i think sort of the trigger event of everything that happened was when Marvel bought Heroes World, you know, and and decided to put all the distribution mm-hmm. uh, with that company, and that backfired because we, you know, I mean, there was this glut of comics uh, from all companies, and I think Marvel was putting out whatever 120 comics a month at that point. Mm-hmm. But people, for whatever reason, you know, people were generally buying them. Sales were slowly declining. And then that Heroes World debacle just broke the supply chain. Mm. And there have been things brewing in the upper corporate levels, you know, I think having to do with the stock price and a lot of other stuff that I vaguely understand, you know, that. But the chain was broken of supply, the spell. I figure there's a constant ratio of like great and medium and terrible comics, but you know, when you're putting out 120 a month, then even if it's even even if 10% of them aren't very good, that's still you know that's still mm-hmm. whatever percentage you you know yeah, it's still good comic. Yeah. So I think that was part of what happened, and then of course that all got mixed in with the Clone Saga controversy, which raised uh, increased Spider-Man sales and profits mm-hmm. and company profits, but it was obviously controversial. So all this stuff happened, and yeah, and Dark Hawk was declining in sales, so that was canceled. I was also doing a miniseries then, uh, Spider-Man Friends and Enemies, which mm-hmm. had Dark Hawk, Spider-Man, Nova, and Speedball, you know, the because you know, each of them was the Spider-Man of their era. So all this stuff happened, and then suddenly Tom DeFalco was no longer the chief. He had the corporate folks sort of pushed him aside he didn't leave his office even though he was no longer chief mm-hmm. he didn't leave his office because i think he had various reasons for not wanting to leave the premises and the corporate people didn't want him to leave because i think having him there would give the illusion of stability so it was a totally surreal period where tom is in his office we're all you know a lot of us are still going to him for advice on what the hell's going on, but he has no actual authority as chief anymore. He's just a he's he's a freelancer mm-hmm. uh, occupying this office. But things pretty much changed overnight. There was uh, what was called a restructuring, which was very popular in corporations in the '90s, and I think still is, 
where my title didn't change, my salary didn't change, but everything changed around me. And suddenly, you know, I had a different boss who, for numerous reasons, I didn't get along with. Tom was no longer my boss. So uh, so I started looking, you know, uh, they had what was called the Marvolution, if you remember that, that phrase. And the mascot for the Marvolution was the Spider-Man clone. That was considered the most exciting thing going on at the company. Hmm. So, but the Ben Riley Spider-Man, when they had the big meeting announcing the Marvolution, the big visual was this huge picture of the Ben of the you know the sweatshirt Spider-Man, you know the Scarlet mm-hmm. Spider. So I was pretty much ready to quit that day. It just really was very. I I, I don't know if you've ever gone through a, a corporate thing, a mm-hmm. corporate restructuring, but but for me, and I think for a lot of people. Next to like the death of a loved one or the end of a of a romantic relationship, I would say this was the most unpleasant and intense thing that ever happened to me. Was that was that day that oh wow, man, a lot of people. I mean, so and I got a lot of mixed messages because because I think even corporate and management and nobody really agreed what the future should be for the company. They sort of done this drastic thing. I think it was a lot of people trying to protect their jobs at various corporate levels. And cooler heads prevailed and convinced me not to walk out, but I started looking around and I actually had, I'd known Byron Price because he was doing, his company was, uh, had licensed, had the license for the Marvel short stories and novels. So I was consulting on the Spider-Man related stuff. So I knew Byron and, and, um, there were some other, ways I had known Byron or, or people close to him. He kind of offered me this job running this uh, new division called Virtual Comics, which was part of his Byron Price multimedia company, which was different than his Byron Price visual publications, although they operated out of the same uh, headquarters and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took me a couple of months to work out a deal uh, with Byron, and I still wasn't sure what was going to happen at Marvel, and, I, and there were several rounds of layoffs, and, and I did not get laid off. They, you know, uh, they wanted me to stay there, but I could see it was only a matter of time. You know, I mean, I look back and I go, well, you know, there were like three or four rounds of layoffs, and mm-hmm. you know, maybe they would have kept me on, or maybe they wouldn't have. You know, Byron gave me an opportunity to go somewhere, to still be involved with comics, to be on the, you know, and and to be able to say, haha, I'm going to the cutting edge of the internet. You know, so all those things sort of happened at once you know look i guess it's it marked so that was by 90 well 96 i think was maybe it was early 96 when there was a big round of layoffs you know mark yes mark very closely identified with the company i guess he did have uh, did they find out he had a genetic because i know i know both his parents had heart problems mm-hmm. so i imagine he was predisposed to that but certainly the stress of the marvolution and all the uh, aftermath uh, obviously didn't help mark really so closely identified with the, well we all identify with the company because it really many of us have grown up there you know um mm-hmm. and it had uh many of the aspects of, of a family and we really had deluded ourselves into thinking that we were sort of immune from corporate and economic realities you know and and then it as it often does in a situation to switch it changed overnight so but i mean so the funny thing i went over to uh to byron price part of the reason i was there was to recruit you know marvel staff to do uh marvel freelancers to do comics which i did so i got fabian and louise you know fabian Cesar, louise simonson uh ron lim jimmy Pamiati. Hmm. Uh, half a dozen other people and of course what we had also was Stan Lee because at that point 
somehow Stan was able to do side projects that they weren't considered directly competing with Marvel. So he had done these series of prose novels for Byron called Rift World. Mm-hmm. Sure. That novels were written by a guy named Bill McKay. You know, but it was called, it was branded Stanley's Rift World. Stan was involved with developing and creating the characters and the scenarios uh, for the novels. And then uh, Byron wanted to do and did a comics adaptation that Stan scripted, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and was involved with the plotting of also. So then I was Stan's editor on that, which, you know, so that was part of my role there also was mm. to be a liaison with Stan Lee, a material he did. And I'd, oh, you know, I'd, worked, cool. and I'd worked with Stan, even been his editor on a, on a few projects over the years. So in some ways, it was like still being at Marvel because I was working with so many of the same people. people. But, but it was a much it was much different in that it was a much smaller company. You know, like I remember, when, you know, in my first week there, I said to somebody, where's the mailroom? And they pointed to the uh, postage machine and said, there's the mailroom. <laughs> You know, right. right. So, you so know, Danny, did you yeah. start as editor in chief, or was that something that developed as you were there at Marvel or at Byron Price? No, at at, at, uh, at Virtual Comic and Byron Price. Yeah, I, I started as editor in chief. I, I I came, you know, I was sort of part of, you know, at Marvel. There'd been a lot of title jockeying and title, you know, they went from having one editor in chief to five editors in chief. So yeah, at Byron, that was that was a big thing. I, I was, uh, I believe, I was vice president slash editor in chief. Yeah, I, that's what I saw, and I I wondered, was it segmented between? Because you guys were releasing them, at, obviously they were online, but they were also being distributed as as print. Is that right? You know, that was another kind of entity and enterprise that changed very quickly because. I think Byron had been doing bits and pieces of experimenting with digital comics, and then he brought me in to run this line. So, yeah, we put them up first. They were on, I think, the Virtual Comics website, but we also put them out on CD-ROM, and then we did print them. There was a big push. We took out a lot of ad space and had articles in the Buyer's Guide and in the um, Diamond catalog and every once in a while at a convention I'll get somebody who will bring up those comics for me to sign we also put them out as paperback editions so we put them out in multiple iterations you know I don't know obviously they never got the traction we were hoping they would I mean I think I look back on those I think you know they were very good imitation Marvel comics I mean we had Mm. very good Marvel creators I was writing I I did one called The Skull with one L so you could trademark it (laughs) you know it was me Ron Lim and Jimmy Pomiati and I was like Greg Wozniak or Chris Wozniak. <laughs> it was I always got those names mixed up. But one That's of the and they were you know I, they were I thought they were very good comics. You know I kind of uh, me Byron uh, basically me and Byron came up with the the basic premises for the characters. You know it was a downtime in the market. Uh, in general, you know, the, the characters did not have the name brand recognition of Spider-Man or, or Iron Man, you know, although we, although we did our best to imitate them. You know? And you and did was, use the digital form to some degree in that y'all had like uh, click and point discoveries right. on the panels and things like that? Wow, you really, yeah, you, did you see that stuff online or on the CD-ROM? There was a oh. New York Times uh, article in 1996. 
seven, I think it was. Holy cow. <laughs> about, about this stuff. And it was interesting because it, it introduced it talking about things like Shannon Wheeler and Desert Peach and, 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 and that kind of online presence. And then it got to you and also uh, Carl Pott doing VR1. And I was right. wondering about that. Were you guys both competing to get Marvel talent? Well, if we, I mean, when you say competing to get Marvel talent, I mean, there was people we wanted, and who, if they weren't under exclusive contract, why not? You know, there was a lot of ill will at that point. When that Marvelution, so-called, happened, a lot of people had their lives and their incomes severely disrupted. It's hard to explain if you haven't gone through it, but it wasn't just a matter of, oh, we need to save money and we're going to, you know, lay off X number of people. A lot of things shifted, a lot of promises that had been made or, or that had been kind of assumed to different people were broken, and there was just less work. I mean, you cancel a lot of books, there's just less work to go around, so were we competing? You know, we just offered people, you know, what we could offer them, and they either took it or not. And, and some people were eager to take it because either they felt badly treated by Marvel or they felt it was only a matter of time before they would be badly treated by Marvel. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think the idea of Marvel or DC or any company as sort of having the freelancers' concerns uh, as their first priority, that illusion was shattered, and, and people realized that there was every man for himself. Mm -hmm. Now, you left there and went to work for a development visionary. Was that because they were shutting down, or, or did you just make a lateral move? Well, again, there was some overlap. You know, Virtual Comics lasted just about two years, and then... There was stuff going on at Virtual, which was part of Byron Price Multimedia, which was also a publicly held company. So there was stuff going on, and they shut down that department. I don't know, you know, to, to anybody who's ever worked in an internet startup, especially in that era, this will probably sound familiar, where someone will say to you, well, we can't afford to pay you anymore, but can you keep coming in so it looks like we're still <laughs> in business? You can use our fax machines and our computers to send out resumes and make phone calls, but it would really help us if you could just... so. So that happened to me at, at a few different startups. So uh, after Virtual, I was uh, freelancing, some for uh, DC and some for Eric Fine, and moved over to a, uh, a company called, I forget the name, but Eric was editing at a kid's book company. I had my probably one of my few jobs outside comics at another startup that was in the self-help area, where again, I brought in a lot of uh, comics people to that. They, uh, that, that was, a, again, a classic internet startup where they said, here, put together a an editorial and writing department so I had to hire like 30 20 or 30 people in like two weeks that was kind of that was an interesting nice. thing to do so while I was doing that I was doing consulting for visionary media which was founded by a guy named David Williams who's actually now got a very interesting company um, with his brother called um, pocket watch that's a, become a becoming a major player in the kids entertainment online and the non-online world but David had started this world girl character and he was he was kind of a early into the digital ent entertainment world and he uh, one of the people he had involved was a guy named buzz potamkin mm -hmm. who was a major player he was the head of television at hanna-barbera he was uh, one of the people behind the i want my mtv campaign and, uh, and the powerpuff girls you know, and the berenstain bears look at the name buzz potamkin so he and a guy named Glenn Ginsberg were the um, people uh, running this visionary media, and they had, you know, a very uh, simple, straightforward 
business model, which was we will put together f- various kinds of flash animated cartoons mm-hmm. uh, in various genres, and if somebody at a studio likes them, we'll make more, <laughs> you know, and we'll go and we'll make a deal with them, and hopefully everybody will make money. There were some internet plays that were more complicated than that, or, or had more bells and whistles. This is really simple. Here's stuff. Do you like it? Okay, give us money, and we'll work out with you on it. You know? And that's where World Girl came from. We had a half dozen other uh, properties we were starting to work on. And, you know, that had been part of Showtime Online, just like actually virtual comics had been involved with the AOL Greenhouse for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of shuffling of funding and corporate sponsorship in the in the Wild West era of the Internet. So a similar thing happened. Virtual ran out of funding. in uh, and, and World Girl actually was, that was the first real example of media convergence in that that was playing online but was also getting some television play, wasn't it? I think it got a little bit of television play, you know, because, yeah. because, of, the, because of the Showtime connection. And, uh, and Alex, that's interesting for you because this was really an early example of motion comics like right. uh, the stuff that you play with. That's exactly what it was. I can't think of a, a much earlier example of it in, in that form. Uh, right, right. Although, although maybe that that '60s Marvel car, those could be kind of seen as motion. Oh, it comics is a prototype well, almost. Prototype. It's a little more motion than that. We called it. It was called flash animation. So it was pretty rudimentary. And before it had been that, I think uh, when David first put it up, I think it was just still images with text. You know. So, yeah. As the bandwidth that more and more people had became higher and higher, you could do more with it. But I think doing full animation with it, there were there were a lot of companies doing uh, various kinds of animation and, and some very interesting stuff. Uh, again, uh, it was one Icebox was that the that was probably the most. Am I remembering that? I think Icebox was one of the better known ones. There were a lot of companies. There was some kind of cult popularity animated series, Hard Drinking Lincoln, just comes to mind. There were mm-hmm. Seth Feinberg, but he spelled it uh, for on his website, Z-E-T-H. He did something called the Bulbo, which was really hilarious. There were all these really interesting, bordering on brilliant webtoons that, of course, made no money. <laughs> You know, well, right. they didn't know how to make money, and the technology, the broadband yeah, wasn't yeah. quite there. There was yeah, it was yeah. ahead of its time in a lot of ways. You know, and then that led to one of my stranger uh, gigs. If if we're, if we're getting in the weeds of the oddball Danny Fingeroth gigs here, huh. I ended up working on a Superman kind of choose your own adventure CD-ROM at, cool. DC, at DC that I was on and Louise was on and we got him Ryder Wyndham a few other people I mean that was kind of a branching adventure when was that 98 I think mm. oh okay but later up it later on ended up on the Warner uh, website as a serialized adventure and then and then I can tell you exactly when this next one is at Showtime oh this is part of the uh, J. Michael Straczynski Jeremiah show do you remember that show no. Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, and that one guy worked on it. He was Joe Kubert's friend from Eastern Europe. I forgot his name, but he had a graphic novel about Sarajevo and all that. Yeah, that was a Jeremiah show, right? Oh, what's it? Okay, yeah, I know. Uh, not Irvin Rust Magic. No. Yeah, him. Irvin Rust Magic was a producer of that show. Maybe Rust Magic was involved with brokering the deal because it was it was it was a French graphic novel by Herman Houpin. Yeah. I think uh-huh. Oh yeah. But the show starred Luke Perry and Malcolm Jamal Warner. Mm-hmm. And the premise, it was a post-apocalyptic show, and everybody, I think everybody who's hit puberty died. 
And this mm-hmm. was 10 years later. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot of like 20-something people who looked good without clothes because it was showtime. It turned out to be a very good show, very well written, especially the ones that Straczynski himself wrote. So what they wanted was they wanted, this was around the time that AI had that website where, you know, the Spielberg movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they had this website where if you wanted to participate, if you gave them your phone number, they'd call you with all sorts of clues or some kind of contest or scavenger hunt going on. So in that same light, what they wanted to do was they wanted to show what happened in those 10 years between whatever the apocalypse was and where the Jeremiah show kicked in. So it was basically... I think they're going to be done from the point of view of of one or more of the scientists who unleashed whatever the horrible thing was that destroyed civilization. They would document how the world went to hell in a handbasket and how there were plagues and nuclear disasters and wars and terrorism. And I was doing it with a guy named Jim Prozer, who's a novelist and uh, whose father was the was a, was like the manager of the Copacabana, but that's just a piece of showbiz trivia that you know. Anyway, so we're doing this thing, and then they needed it in a hurry, so they put me and him in a hotel room for like a week, mm-hmm. and then 9/11 happened. Right. And suddenly, nobody wanted a website about plagues and terrorism and nuclear disasters mm-hmm. and, and the end of the world going to hell in a handbasket. Right. So, That's funny. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was uh, grimly funny, but I mean, uh, and to their credit, Showtime, uh, you know, paid us what they said they would and stuff. But that that, that was something that could have been very big, but that the uh, real life took a yeah. hand. Yeah. One, one question about your DC time there when you were right, because you didn't write a lot for DC. But you did do a Superman story, uh, Too Close to Home, and I can't find it. Like, I don't have that issue, or if I do, it's, it's somewhere. It's an annual. It's in, like, one of their annual, the Super Specials. Was that your only Superman comic? No, I did another one. Actually, I got it, one that got reprinted numerous times. It was uh, called Soul Survivor, or, or uh, it was me, uh, Randy Green, and I forget who inked it, but it appeared in, like, a... I don't think it got printed in a Superman comic per se but it's like in a dc super something and then it was reprinted as part of a collection later on it was, it was a cool st- you know it was a i mean i'm i doubt on the first person to come up with the premise but the idea was scientist on earth who is convinced that the earth is going to blow up and sends his son or wants to send his son rocketing out into space and you know so it was just a riff on the on the on the classics oh yeah that pops up every once in a while yeah yeah so i those were the two i did i I think all the work I did at DC, well, obviously that digital thing was for a different department, but I did three Superman stories for Joey Cavalieri. One of them never got printed, I think, partly because he had given the art to a new guy who had a very kind of oddball style that... So maybe that was considered too oddball with that. I don't even remember what the premise of that was, but it, but it didn't get printed. Mm-hmm. And I, I was working for a while with uh, Kevin Dooley on a miniseries, um, the spinoff. The spinoff from Chase? Was there a comic called Chase or a character called Chase? Oh, sure. Yeah, it was good. With, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the art was great on it. Yeah, so I, I was I was pitching I think some kind of spinoff from that that I think never happened, and then before anything got finalized, I think Kevin for whatever reason was no longer there. That was all the work I ended up doing. Oh, well, I guess if you count, I I think I did some Flintstones. Oh yeah. Maybe. I think, yeah, definitely a couple of Flintstone stories, maybe a, I don't think, might have done one Jetson, but I mean as far as the superheroes, that was all I did for DC. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. 
How did you get into working at uh, Tomorrow's, and what did you start with? Tomorrow's was, was a whole different kind of situation because I was not working for them; I was working with them, and, I, and I'll right. explain to you what I mean by that. In other words, you know, Mike Manley was doing Draw Magazine, which is a wonderful magazine. If you haven't picked it up, I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. And I basically looked at it and said to myself, "Huh, wonder if they'd want to publish something that's about writing." Right. And I think I may have met John once or twice at the San Diego Con or something. So I basically either emailed him or called him. I think at the same time, I think he was thinking of a similar thing. I wonder if there'd be a market for a magazine uh, about comics writing. So I happened to call him at the right time. It was a partnership. I wasn't ever working for John. It was more a matter of we were partners in this magazine. Venture. And that's called Right Now Magazine, and it takes a reader, the reader Danny behind Fingeroth. the... It's called Danny Fingeros Right Now Magazine. Danny Fingeros Right Now Magazine, <laughs> yeah. and Right Now with a W, and yeah. it takes the reader behind the scenes of the comics industry, and it culminated into the best, a best of right. compendium book. Tell us, how is it developing the format for Right Now Magazine, and how was it interviewing and talking to different people, and what, what was your mission statement with the magazine? That's like five questions in one. It is. It actually it ended up in the... How to Create Comics from Script to Print book and, and the CD-ROM that Mike and I did. Perhaps the first ever trade magazine crossover in history. <laughs> but, I mean, that book, uh, you know, is still relevant. And it also ended up in the Stanley Universe book that I did with right. Tom. Right. That book sprang out of the 85th birthday issues that Roy did for Alter Ego and I did for right now. And then I ended up going to Stan's archives and getting a lot of new material, never before seen stuff that, that made up the rest of the book. But the, it was very interesting for me. I'd done some editing of articles for, for some of the various Marvel magazines, the Xanadu Super Special. And, you know, so I had some experience with editing and, and writing texts like that, but, but I was certainly not a journalist by by training or experience, you know. Mm-hmm. So that led to some actual fortuitous accidents because I didn't know what you couldn't do. I mean, I, I mean, I'm very grateful on the first issue because I'm a writer and editor, and I lean so toward text that the that even though I had a lot of illustrations in the first issue, I didn't have nearly enough. And John, you know, pointed that out to me. It was great doing those interviews. I'll tell you why in a second. But if you read the by like maybe the fifth issue, I'd gotten to sort of know what I was doing. But the first maybe three, four, five issues, there's a lot of interviews there that they go on quite a bit, and I think they're interesting. But in later issues, I probably would have trimmed them down some. So you're mm-hmm. getting a lot more raw material in the <laughs> in the first few issues. Here's the thing about writers and creative people in general, of course, and comics people in particular, is they spend you know all day uh, alone at their desk or their drawing board. Right. And they, you know, I mean, you, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess a lot of them, especially if you're inking or something that doesn't require a, a certain kind of concentration, you can be on the phone. But but a lot of them are just focused on their work, and they and so when somebody asks them what they think or or about their careers or, or or about their theories on comics, they're more than happy to talk about it at length. You know, so because they live in their head most of the time. Exactly. What I think I bring to a lot of things I do is this insider's point of view. So I'm asking them questions that a journalist or a historian or an academic might not think to ask. Two things I found fascinating, or you know, among the things, I found very few people speaking complete sentences. Mm-hmm. Even people who seem like they're speaking complete sentences and who may seem very, and who are very articulate and very intelligent, speak in fragments and digressions. Uh, I think Jam DeMattis is one of the few people who I ever interviewed who speaks in complete sentences. Oh, interesting. Was, as if he was writing. So transcripts get tricky that way. 
Transcripts are tricky because you don't want to alter what someone says. You don't want to alter their meaning, but you need to also cut out the ums and the repetitions and the, right. and the moments where they're kind of buying time while, while they're getting their thoughts together. So that's tricky. What I found fascinating was I, I had what was called nuts and bolts, which that was literally I'd show scripts and plots and pencils and layouts and, and literally show how things were done. But for the interviews... You know, you'd say to somebody something like, well, how did you break in, you know? Mm -hmm. And they'd say, well, you know, I was having lunch with John Byrne one day. And uh, then he said, and I go, wait a minute. You know, you're talking like everybody has lunch with John Byrne. How did you get to be someone who... You right, know? go to the so beginning. I, and a lot of people would say things like that. They would they would leap ahead like four steps in their career. Like, you know, somehow they would start the story when they were already, if, if not already a professional of some kind, then already had at least a foot in the door. And I found that interesting that I often had to very, probably, probably very annoyingly kind of try to backtrack. No, how did you get to that? How did you get to, you know, the point was to, not to show... Right. Obviously, no reader. You can't duplicate somebody's life. But you can. I thought it was important to show that. Well, look, you may not think you know anybody, but you probably know somebody who knows somebody, you know, in some kind of position to at least get you in a door or get you a meeting or get your work in front. I mean, especially now in the age of the Internet, that's even more true. But right. back in the early 2000s, you know, it was it was. We had the internet, but it was so. I, I found that fascinating that so many people would skip ahead to like. So I'm talking to you know to George Lucas. Like, how did you get to be in the room with George <laughs> Lucas? You know. Right. <laughs> so. Well, that's interesting. And so then that leads into like you mentioned um, the Stan Lee Universe 2011 book right. that uh, you made with Roy Thomas, and it's full of interviews of people who were there during the 60s Marvel Renaissance and the creation of all those characters. How was it going through that? And did you learn things you didn't already know about that era? All this history, like all history, right, has multiple layers to it. It was interesting. Is I know it's not like a great colorful word, but we did those interviews with people, and then yeah, it was. I mean, it's, you know, I think I think especially say Al Jaffe, who I'd known. Uh, I got to know Al maybe a few years before that, you know, and Al, who's 98 and still got all his marbles and, mm -hmm. you know, still uh, doing the mad uh, uh, folding. But, you know, so, so 10, 12, 14 years ago, it all ties in. It ties in with my books, too, because I and my starting to do conventions, because you get to meet these, these old timers and you get to hear their stories and you sort of hear where their stories, where different people's stories contradict each other. And, right. You know, I mean, everybody thinks of Al, of course, from Mad Magazine and, and uh, the Mad Fold-In and, and the uh, snappy answers to stupid questions. But Al worked for 10 years as a writer and editor and artist for Stan Lee. Right. You know? oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And the same with Jerry Robinson. And this, I mean, Stan and Will Eisner are two people that everybody worked for at some point uh, mm -hmm. for various reasons. You know, people wanted to apprentice with Eisner because he was Eisner. People liked Stan as a as a person and as an editor, but he also had a high volume of work to, that he needed done. I think that was sort of one thing I realized, just how many people who you wouldn't think of as people who worked for and with Stan did that and in what capacities. And also the idea of how Marvel grew and changed over the years, how it, how big it had been in the 50s and then suddenly became small in the you know in 57 when they had one of the periodic implosions and sort of how that gave birth to marvel i ended up going out to stan's archives in wyoming which i recommend you know and they're open to the public you just have to get to laramie wyoming stan's archives have a web finding page you, know, you can you can search out things but the problem is that they are not always 
because I think some of them are cataloged by people who don't who don't know their comics history like you know you and I do and you know who who does I mean that you know right. they don't know all the fine points so some of it was ambiguously cataloged and I tried to order some online and I did and what I got was technically what described but it wasn't really what I was after so I I realized it would be good to take a trip out there so we put that into the budget and I went out there for a week and and I'd say the most fascinating stuff I found was a lot of radio shows Stan had been on in, in the 60s and 70s. And some of them were boilerplate, you know, it's great, buy it kind of things. But some of them were very long form, really fascinating interviews or debates or conversations. I'm thinking of one that Stan had with Hilda Mossy on the Barry Farber show in 1968. Hilda Mossy was Frederick Wortham's partner in research and, and comics hating, you know, and mm-hmm. And I mean, this was 10 years after, or, or more, 10, close to 15 years after the production of The Innocent, but it still was a very heated kind of discussion. Right. I found a recording of Stan and Jack in 1967 on a local New York station. So I had a lot of that stuff transcribed, and that's in the book, and it's, you know, it's, it, so that was really the mind-blowing thing about going to that archive and just finding this stuff that had not been heard or seen in, in decades. And there's a lot of it. I think it would have been even more. At one point, there was a fire at Marvel Productions, so Stan lost a lot of his stuff, but there was still a ton of material, and I had to go through it very quickly to try to determine what it was. But, but a very interesting thing about Stan was that for all his salesmanship and hucksterism and ballyhooing, if you listen close, he said a lot of stuff that was very frank and very honest, but he said it in the same tone that he would say that it's great buy it or I'm working on this or I just had lunch with this big movie. You know, I mean, you really have, have, have to listen, but Stan always said stuff that was really remarkably frank for someone in, in, in the high-level position he was in and including in these radio shows. So that... I think that, if anything, is one of the great selling points of the Stanley universe and, and, and helps fuel a lot of my research and thinking about him for the biography, too. Well, I see what you're saying, yeah. As far as Stanley, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, well, you and I spoke once in person about this, about there's a synergy and that the sum of the parts was greater than the individual parts. Yeah. Before Jim talks about Superman on the Couch with you, can you elaborate? on that synergy that that you feel occurred there? I was a talking head last year in that series, that Robert Kirkman series on comics. Yeah. And and I and I felt bad because there was you know you know the interviewer was doing his job right he he his job was to get people to say controversial stuff. Even though I knew that it was going to be an interview like that, I kind of let myself get backed into a corner. So there's a clip of me going, no Stanley, no Marvel Comics, as if, as if I was negating Jack Kirby's or Steve mm-hmm. Ditko's roles, you know. Right. But I mean, I, you know, sort of the full belief that I have is that without any of those, certainly without, right, without Stan, without Jack, without Steve, you know, I mean, maybe you could say since Steve, quote-unquote, only did Spider-Man, the most popular character in Doctor Strange, all three are irreplaceable, and in his way, Martin Goodman is irreplaceable. You know, I mean, there's, you know, he's sort of the the power behind the curtain. You know, I think I think all four of, well, you know, you, you you look at the work they all did before and the work they all did after, and there's something magical. I don't think it's just that I was, you know, you know, were eight or ten years old when that stuff came out. I mean, there's something magical about what they all did together that transcended to me what they'd done before or or since. Everything then becomes a debate about credit and money and those are not 
small topics. But I mean, as far as the magic on the page, you know, and the sense of wonder that it engenders in a in a kid or or, a, or an adult reader, I mean, that yeah, I, I just think they all somehow, whether they loved or hated or got along with or didn't get along, you know, whatever whatever went on, but went out, what came out on the page was. I think the best work of of all their their uh, combined careers. Right. Yeah. The special time. Okay. Uh, let's move on to your books because I I want to have room for the three of them, and then we'll get to the new Stanley book. But I want to talk about Superman on the Couch. I want to talk about Disguise as Clark Kent, and I want to talk about the Rough Guide to Graphic Novels. So let's start with the first one, which would be Superman on the Couch. Now that was your was that your first straight up. I won't say textbook, but book that's not a comic book. Pretty much. I, I had been writing some articles, you know, for various online and print publications. And I've been doing a lot of writing, of course, for right now. And not just the interviews, but there were articles and editorials. So I've been doing a lot of writing. And, of course, I've been writing my whole life. But, yeah, that, that was the first bookie book. I had my credit on some novels for Byron Price, but those, now it can be told, those three Spider-Man novels that were variously credited to me, Eric Fine and Pierce Askegren, were actually, they were plotted by me and Eric, and they were then, the actual novels were written by Pierce. Hmm. Um, but Byron didn't think, and probably correctly, that a novel should have more than two writers in the, in, in the credits of any one novel. <laughs> yeah. And I did some short stories. I mean, yeah, this is my first book of quote-unquote criticism or pop culture uh, insight, and and it came about a uh, brilliant editor that I went to high school with, a guy named uh, Van Delamke, was I ran into him at a high school reunion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd known each other somewhat over the years, but he said, uh, do you have any ideas for books on comic books of superheroes? And I think I pitched him a half dozen ideas, and this was the one that he liked the most. And, and, and uh, so I developed it uh, from there. Was this before Peter Coogan's book? And was he still working? He'd done his uh, dissertation by... By now, I think. Boy, you know, I think it was before Coogan's book. Maybe it was being worked on simultaneously, but I think mine came out before Coogan. Because mm-hmm. yeah. you're book, both I mean, addressing what is a superhero in a lot of ways and right, asking right. a lot of interesting questions. Although, what I, although as opposed to Peter, I mean, Peter, sort of the point of his book is to say, here is a definition of superheroes. Yes. Mine was more of asking the questions and saying, you know, it's a kind of very elastic kind of definition. So in that yeah. way, Peter and I took opposing point of views. But one thing that book did was it put me on the map with uh, Peter and Randy Duncan and a lot of other comics academics. That sort of introduced me to this whole other world of people who were approaching comics in a much different way than, than, than right. I've ever been familiar with. Which is cool that, that you um, yeah. can kind of uh, cover it from both ends like that. Yeah, I think so. And I think also that I had, you know, not that I'm the world's foremost authority in independent comics, but I'd always had an interest in underground comics and alternative comics. I realized they had a credibility. I think maybe back to my kind of fine arts film background, I realized there were a whole lot of ways to approach any medium. Right. So all this, I mean, I find it funny, and I'm, maybe I said this last time, but I'll say, you know, I still find it funny that people who know a lot about comics, including professionals in comics, when you mention the name Raina Telgemeier, they go, I never heard of that person. And you go, well, you know, she's the highest selling graphic novelist in the world. And, and then they'll go right back to saying, and comics are over, and nobody's reading them. May mm-hmm. I repeat, she sells a million of each credit. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, So I think I was and am more interested and open to considering all all sorts of comics. And and I think that 
makes me a viable part. There's a whole world of comics, academics, intellectuals that range all the way from people with PhDs and beyond to people like me who've been in the business and people like Nikki Wheeler Nicholson who, you know, has a master's, although I think not in comics, but, you know, she's somebody educated like that who also was the granddaughter of the founder of DC. Uh, of DC and and so there's a wide range of comics studies people and people writing and and talking about comics and uh, anyway to go back so so I know that's a much more complicated what was your question about the about the book about Superman on the couch well I mean well, let's, um, let's... It, isn't it also an exploration into like American identity and a deconstruction of the superhero genre I mean you really kind of dissect all this don't you yeah well you know I think what I, I think what had happened is one of the reasons I even pitched the thing was it didn't seem to me that anybody since Wortham had, any, had written a book about superheroes and psychology, mm-hmm. which seemed like a weird thing to me, you know, that, that somehow that maybe Wortham made the topic so radioactive. You know, so if you read Jerry Jones and uh, Jacobson Jones books you know, about uh, their history books, there's a lot of psychology in those, you know. Um, you know so I think there were different history books that maybe incorporated a lot of insights. I mean, I, mean, I have to say mine... Ultimately, Superman on the Couch is probably more of a, of a sociological than a psychological study, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I do try to deconstruct it and, and find the origins of it. A lot of it I look at now and I realize, boy, I really accepted a lot of the history as given at that time without question. You know, there's a lot of kind of those creation myths of the heroes. Certainly nobody, as far as I could tell, had attempted that kind of approach since Wortham. And, it, um, it's a very funny book, though. I mean, I, I like a lot of the, like, you do things like calling the Justice League the uh, Judgment League, because <laughs> that was one of my favorite lines in the whole book. And you get into things like the Hulk, his anger versus Batman's anger. And I thought, talk about that for a minute, because I thought that was a brilliant section of the book. Uh, when the, it's so brilliant, I've forgotten it. You better remind me. What are oh. I <laughs> <laughs> So the Hulk anger is all out in, it, like, it's, it's pure... It's a pure expression of, of anger with nothing else behind it, whereas right. Batman, it's channeling it, and you, you basically go through and talk about how his anger creates everything that's about Batman, but it's a controlled anger. I guess I did say that. I mean, what I remember, you know, I don't know about discovering, but sort of what I found most fascinating was how so many of the superheroes are the product of a violent, sudden loss, you yeah. know, a, tra- a traumatic... To me, that was, you know, not so much a surprise, but just how deeply it went. And I think I continue this in disguise as Clark Kent and maybe put a finer focus of a of having a Jewish background on it. But that idea of everything you have could suddenly go away and everything could be taken away and, and everyone you love could disappear. And the fantasy, I guess, say with Batman... And Robin, Robin is a complicated character in, in general, you know, that's, no one since like the 50s has ever been able to really give a credible explanation of Robin, you know, right? Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't work today now, especially. It gets very, very tricky yeah. to do. I mean, I have to say, you know, I know it was controversial, but I really loved Frank Miller's take on it in All-Star Batman and Robin. Just, you know, Batman is essentially abusing this kid, and, and, and right. his answer to any question is, I'm the goddamn Batman, you know, right? Yeah. I like that too. It's a, it sort of short circuits any like, is it psychological or you know, or or, or criminal abuse to to bring a twelve year old on your deadly? Mi- I'm the goddamn Batman. Shut up, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Having to eat rats was a, a bit too far for me, but. <laughs> 
because I actually at one point I considered, I mean, I remember having a long discussion with Danny O'Neill about how does he rationalize taking a 12-year-old and, you know, I mean, really, there's no really good answer, you know, except it's comic books and it was the 1940s, who cared, you know. But, you but know. Batman, Batman is a sadist, though. So for me, that Robin origin was consistent with just Batman being a sadist right. and Joker being right. a masochist and all that stuff. But the, but this whole thing about, about traumatic loss, I thought, was, was very, you know, gets to the heart of the characters and the heart of where they came from, which was the eve of, of World War II and the tail end. Of course, they didn't know it was the tail end of the Great Depression. And look at what's going on, you know, Little Orphan Annie. There's all, there's all, every, there's so much in, you know, the dead end kid. There's so much in the culture about children or young adolescents tossed out on their own for, I think it's so powerful, that whole metaphor. So the fantasy of, you know, I think one thing I do remember, you know, I, mean, I remember a lot of the, one of the things, the points I remember making was that whole fantasy of, of being an orphan. You know, it's a much, it's it's a nice vicarious fantasy if you know obviously if your if your parents actually do get killed in front of your eyes not you know that that would not be such a great thing psychologically or any other way the fantasy of you and your pal batman you know fighting crime and dodging bullets what a great fantasy right that's the fun uh, part uh, what i was trying to do with that book although i was doing it for an academic publisher and I'm hoping at some point in the next couple of years to do an updated version. I was going to ask you about that. That's next on my agenda. It just seems to me that that was superheroes. Even if the superhero, you know, movie and TV genre fell off a cliff, you know, then that would just be another chapter. Like, why did it fall off a cliff? <laughs> you know, well, right you're now. writing this book and you're talking about why the audience is drawn to it in terms of uh, film. And this is four years before Iron Man. You're drawing a lot of conclusions, but you'd have to want to rewrite some of that in light of what has happened, you know. I'd say Superman on the Couch was in print for like 14 years and went through like four or five printings. But at this point, the rights have reverted to that and to Disguise as Clark Kent. I have the rights to both those books back. Disguise as Clark Kent was unfortunate because it was the same editor. But uh, shortly before that book came out, he parted ways with the company. So there was nobody. It was an orphan, you know, um, so there was nobody whose you know job depended on that book doing well. So it kind of got lost. Although, although I personally think it's a much better written and research book than Superman on the Couch. But let's but, talk about that for because we don't have all day. Okay. Let's, let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about that one for a few minutes too because I that's an area that I think a lot of people like to argue about, uh, get defensive about in relation to Schuster and Siegel and whether what Superman represents. And there's just so much of of that topic of Jewishness in comics that I, I want to hear what you were aiming well, for. Well, I mean, I, I given my background. And, and my interests, you know, uh, I, I kind of knew that was there. And I have to say, the thing what sort of helped crystallize it was Ari Kaplan's series of articles in Reform Judaism magazine that later became his book uh, from Crack Out of Krypton. At that point, I don't know if I'd met Ari yet, and I didn't know if he was, that, you know, somehow it seemed, again, it talked with my with my editor, what would be a good follow-up Superman on the couch, and, you know, this, uh, you know, it's, it's a cliche that Jews like to buy books about Jews, but it's also true, <laughs> you know. So you know there's an audience for it, and and I had a lot to say about. It. I was hesitant. If you put in the term Jews and superheroes on Google, you will get as many hate sites as you do like Tribute or intellectual sites. I mean, it's a little scary. So I, I really thought 
boy, am I just giving, you know, you know, whereas what I'm seeing as, yay us, we made these superheroes, you know, somebody else who's inclined towards uh, prejudice and anti-Semitism and, and nuttiness would have a like, it's another Jewish conspiracy, you know? So I really had to, had to think a lot about that. And I, I think I addressed that in the book. And, and what I tried to, to not do is to not, I clearly say, you know, I'm seeing these Jewish metaphors and Jewish subtext, but clearly in 99% of the time, it's not what the creators had in mind. What the creators had in mind was doing something that would have the widest possible appeal, but you can't separate them from their context. My, my favorite thing is Joe Simon, who was very nice, and any time I met him was very complimentary and generous. He, he said, there's no connection. He sent me an email saying, there's no connection. We never were trying to do anything Jewish. It's a non-topic. Right. I, got permi- I got permission from him to reprint that email. And then, I'm not, I forget if this is in the book or not, they did that Captain America, the death of Captain America story in, at Marvel, you know, right around that time. And I'm listening to NPR one day, and Joe Simon is on, and the uh, interviewer says, Mr. Simon, how do you feel about the fact that they've killed your character? And Joe says, I'm sitting shiver for Captain America. Hmm. And I'm thinking, well, that's pretty funny for a guy who sees no. I mean, it was a it was a really funny thing to say and really appropriate. I said, well, that's really you know, Joe's no idiot. He knew he knew that that would be like a great soundbite, but it's pretty funny for someone who said, oh, there's no Jewish connection at all. <laughs> you know? Right. Trying to invoke that phrase, which is you know the you know the name for you know the Jewish mourning custom is uh, sitting you know uh, in mourning for seven days, shiva meaning seven. You know, and again, my favorite discovery was the Jewish subtext in the Thor, you know, in the Norse god Thor, where he kept ploring Odin to let him marry uh, you know the the mortal Jane Foster, and 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 Odin kept forbidding him to it. You know, Odin looking very biblical and rabbinical the way Kirby drew him with the beard, and, right. and finally Jane is willing to uh, to convert to be become a god and that becomes disastrous. I'd, I have no doubt that neither Stan nor Jack had any intention of that being the subtext of the story, but it's when you're sort of looking at it and sort of po- when you're not looking for it, to me anyway, as a grown-up reading it, it just sort of popped out. And there's just a lot of interesting things in the history. So did Siegel and Schuster mean Superman to be a metaphor for Moses? Uh, I think it was there in their background. I think they yeah, had... I don't think it matters whether yeah. they it was intentional or subconscious. It seems right. Like it, it's you know, I, I, I never, you know, I mean, even people have tried to give a literal interpretation of the name Kal-El. To me, that was a little much. I, I think they didn't even give him that name till a while later. You know, a lot of stuff that we think of the Superman mythology came later from different writers or, and different editors. And you can't not credit Mort Weisinger and Julie Schwartz with a lot of their contribution to the, to the heroes. I sort of had fun with that book, but I think it's a serious topic uh, as well. And, and, and I think, I again, I'd learn more about research and more about, you know, I mean, if my books are about here's some research and here's what Danny thinks, I, th- I think I was more comfortable with both for Disguises Clark Kent. I just wanted to say the whole time you're talking, I don't have that book. I have the others. So I'm walking around holding the Harvey P. Carr uh, Yiddish book because uh-huh, Yiddish <laughs> you're at least it, you are in that one. So it was my way of, of connecting. <laughs> well, it's pretty funny. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I want to do the rough guide next because I think that's relatively important and it, it's easy to brush off as just being part of a chain of books. But you've got a lot of really informative history in there, and it covers so many different topics and grounds. And a lot of this is not what one would expect from somebody who had worked at Marvel 
most of their career in that you you bring a great knowledge of what was happening in in alternative comics and and other things to it. So yeah, please talk about that. That was funny. I get a call one day from the editor of that book, and he says, "Would you like to write the rough guide to graphic novels?" And I said. Uh, sure. I said, but it is funny that you didn't call me when you did the rough guide to superheroes. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, I would have expected that, but sure. You know, I mean, they offered me, a, it was a good, you know, it's a good financial deal. And I don't want to just brush it off by saying it was a work for hire because, I mean, all the great comics we love are works for hire. I guess they asked me for a list. There were some things they wanted. It was done in a flurry. It was done very quickly. I tried to give a wide range of stuff. I thought it was funny that they said everything but superheroes, but they still put like a superhero scene on the cover. Mm. Yeah. Somebody at some point must have said, eh, we'll sell more if we put kind of, if we put a superhero battle on it. And I think, I guess there must have been maybe Watchmen and some other stuff. Yeah. Most of it was stuff I'd read or read for the purpose of, of the, of the book, you know. Did you have help on it or did you just, did you do it, all the research yourself? I think. I did all the research myself. I think we must, I think with the editor and maybe other people at Rough Guides, we probably decided on the list and what would be there. You know, there were, boy, again, this is so long since I've read that. Yeah, most, I, I'd say most of the stuff, I had an issue uh, with a couple of things that they wanted and I sort of insisted on putting in, you know, inserting like certain editorial comments about them if I couldn't convince them not to have it in. But yeah, I, I think uh, they I recall a lot of just, you know, whatever the parameters were, X number of main topics. You know, I definitely wanted, I loved Harvey Picar and his work, and that actually led to my relationship with Harvey. I'd, I'd met Harvey once or twice at conventions, hi, how you doing? But when I wrote so glowingly about him in the book, he called me, and uh, that's how my relationship with Harvey really began. Oh. Oh, that's great. That's really interesting. Which which led to, in 2009, which I can't believe it was 10 years ago, but I did a series of three nights at the Yivo Institute, which is like a Jewish Yiddishist uh, institution in New York. I did three nights in 2009 called Comics and the Jewish American Experience that a guy who was running their cultural de de department then, uh, Harold Steinblatt, uh, saw my books on display in my local opticians and he and he remembered that he knew me and he contacted me. So suddenly I'm doing a night with Al Jaffe, a night with Harvey Picar, and a night with Jules Pfeiffer. Those are pretty amazing, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, all these different things, I'm sure you know from your own careers, a thing you don't... Ex I thought maybe having my book and my... You know, I was friendly with my optician. So, I, you know, he said, oh, I like to put my, my clients, you know, books or paintings on display. So I figured, well, maybe somebody will buy a copy of my book or something, having seen it. I didn't think it would lead to, like, somebody I knew from some other part of my life suddenly contacting me and me ending up being able to do these incredible nights with, uh, you know, that include the night where, that was just around, I knew Al a little, but I, you know, in, in preparing for this evening, I got to know, you know, we, we spent a lot of time together. He really wanted to do it right, and we, we spent a lot of time. I, I want to ask you more yeah. about the, the nights, but uh, no, let's go to Stan Lee yeah. first. Okay, sure. Yeah. And so, so you did a lot of research for your upcoming book. It's called A Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee. It's basically his biography is, is that correct it is a biography <laughs> yes. yes and that's different from the stanley universe book which focuses more on his marvel creations did you interview his brother and other family members how did you come about this i've been trying to get this off the ground for years because it's kind of a no-brainer you know what would be the most likely book that people might be interested in who are who are not 
hardcore comics fan, but in the you know in the world outside that, oh, a biography of Stan Lee. Well, it turns out I know Stan Lee. Right. So I tried. Stan and I talked about it at various points. I pitched the idea a couple of places, and I let it lay for a while. Then I pitched it, you know, at my at an agent uh, who who pitched it. So it went through various phases. Was it going to be authorized? Turned out, no, it's not. Gonna, you know, it's not authorized. But it again, it's from an insider point of view. Yes, and and so ultimately, with when I told Stan I'd made the deal, he said. Uh, Congratulations! I hope you know. Hope it sells well. He said, "I'm not going to tell people talk to you or not talk to you. It's fully up to them." And uh, at first, he didn't want to do. He said, "He said I've done too many interviews." But then I would occasionally, in my subtle way, gently nag him about it. And you know, I now I live in Washington Heights, where he grew up. So I would occasionally send him photos of like the you know the George Washington Bridge at sunset, at George Washington at night. You know. So I don't know if that touch some kind of sentimental chord and for whatever reason though and I guess it was I guess it was also during the period when I was his regular interviewer at the wizard shows right and I was traveling with wizard for four years so for whatever reason he ultimately did decide that he would do an interview with me and then he did a follow-up so yeah, I have and and I asked him questions that again with guys like Stan and Will Eisen who knows if you can ask him a question nobody's ever asked but I think I was because I'd done my homework and because I knew him personally I think I could ask him things and get answers that maybe he wouldn't have thought to give to somebody else so I, I, I and this is in the book in the biography there's a lot quote from my exclusive interviews with him, and I interviewed, yes, I, uh, with his brother Larry. I, um, uh, that's the only family member I spoke to. Yeah, so Larry Lieber was obviously a source on this then. Right, and Neil Adams, and, um, well, and I had a lot of those interviews left over, or not left over, but a lot of things I did for the Stanley Universe, so Jim Mooney, and I also spoke to uh, Stan Goldberg's widow, and to uh, Ken Ball. Oh. Okay. And to Ken and to Ken Ball's daughter, got a gazillion. Uh, Mark Evenier, Roy Thomas. I spoke to one of the people who uh, invited Stan to his first speaking engagement at Bard in 1964. I just cold called her. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she had a somewhat unusual name, so I was able to find her. Oh, and I nice. she's either going to think I'm a nut and like you know call the police or something, huh. or. She- or she's going to be just like talk on and on. And luckily with the latter, she you know remembered it very well and talked. So I think I found a number of people who are not the usual suspects of being interviewed uh, about Stan and about comics. I want to emphasize that it's not a history of Marvel comics. It's a biography of Stan Lee. Right. So, you know, so I mean, I think Sean Howe did the comprehensive Marvel comics history mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. But this... Right. This is about Stan, so it's it's uh, you know a, a lot with Al with Jaffe, who uh, I interviewed numerous times. Like I have a list of, of fifty or sixty. Yeah, a lot of interviews that, that I talked. But it to. sounds like um, you went, you were as extensive as possible and interviewed everyone you could that was around yeah. in those times. Yeah. Do you go all the way to final days, or do you cut off at some point? Well, I mean, yes, I go to final days, but you know, there's a lot of unfinished business regarding Stan's life. So, I mean, at a certain point, you just sort of have to say, as of press time, X, Y, and Z was happening. So, it's not a book about Stan's final days, although obviously there's no way to not cover it. Because not have that part. Because it was so wacky, you know, I mean, the every day a different story and every day a different part he heard from about, you know. Yeah, that would yeah, seem like a tricky true. part to do from a, a, a legal standpoint. Yeah. Uh, you are correct. 
<laughs> uh, and yet you can't really ignore it. You know, I mean, I guess you could just say I'm ending the biography at you know whatever mm-hmm. 2015 or something. But that's really the 800-pound gorilla in the Stanley story is those strange final, final days. Day. And I think there is a book and maybe even a movie to be made about those. But I try to sort of put Stan in context of the comics business, of American history, of pop culture history. And I think a lot of it is about, again, how can you avoid his relationship with Kirby and Ditko? You know, I mean, how can you how can you not, you know, talk about them? Yeah. uh, You know, and try to sort of put it in retrospect. I think, oddly enough, what I bring is not just insider status and not just status of somebody who knew Stan, although by, I, I, I by no means claim to have been Stan's best friend. You know, I knew mm-hmm. him, he was a colleague, we were fond of each other, but I can't, you know, I, I can't claim that I was his intimate, close buddy. But what I do bring is having been in a similar position to his as an editor and writer of comics. And I'm not claiming, obviously, that I was a groundbreaker or, or, or innovator in the same way he was, but that I can look at some of these controversies as someone on the inside, as a staff member at Marvel and in comics in general and say, boy, this may look like one thing, but, you know, there's another way to look at, you know, whatever whatever it is. So I, I, I think that I bring that in a way that someone who hasn't worked literally in the comic book business on staff that mm-hmm. you know what you know and those other people bring whatever they bring as journalists as critics as free, you know as full-time freelancers but I do think I bring a certain insight that just comes with my own personal experience and career right a couple questions so one you come from a perspective of a um, writer in comic and uh, a creator of characters and uh, editor, much like Stan does. Do you feel like that gave you kind of a special insight? And then two, you know, I think they say Jack Kirby had a very strong Jewish identity, and you've remarked on the Jewish identity. Did Stan Lee, did he express much to you as far as a Jewish identity? Um, did he? Did that come out of him? I don't think he talked about it a lot. I mean, obviously, I did an interview with him, you know, back when I was doing Disguise as Clark Kent, and I, and I quote from, from that. So I would say Stan did not emphasize his Jewish identity, but he wasn't, you know, I don't think he was embarrassed or ashamed of it either. I mean, I think he, I did talk a lot about his childhood and his bar mitzvah and various other, I'd say there's insights into Stan's Jewish background in, in, in my book that you, you probably won't get any anywhere else. So, yeah, he he um he always said that it wasn't, you know, look, his Stanley Lieber. Right. You know, maybe if you know, it, it's an ambiguous name. It's not, you know, if you, you know, if you put out a book with the name Stan Lieber, maybe some people would think it was a Jewish name, others would think it was a German name. You know, it's certainly no more. I mean, Stan Lee is a name that only a 70-year-old kid would come up with, you know. I mean, it's Easy. like, "Oh, I'll put, I'll break my name." Cuz I think a lot of people thought he was Asian just because, you know, his name was Stan Lee, you know, or, right. or if you were going to change your name. So I think he just did it because a lot of people in comics did it, whatever their nationality. And, and I think in, in those days, you know, he didn't want to taint his chances of doing a great novel or becoming a journalist or whatever. So I, 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 think, he didn't, I think he didn't change his name because he didn't want people to know he was Jewish. I think he just wanted to simplify it right. and, and, and not have it be baggage when later on he would try you know, to do whatever else. Something else, yeah. He didn't know that his fame and, and fortune would be connected to the name Stan Lee. And another question before Jim talks about Will Eisner is the reinvention of Stan Lee, because him and Jack, you know, they weren't exactly young chickens when 
they created the Marvel characters um, with Steve Ditko in the 60s. So like you, you were mentioning um, before, is that when you look at pictures of him from the 50s and the pictures from the 60s and after the projection of his image <laughs> with his, with his yeah. hair, his sunglasses, that brand identity of Stan Lee, you know, can you remark a bit on, on his reinvention of himself in the 60s and 70s? That's an amazing thing. You know, in any business, people get into a rut and they get into a habit, especially if they've been reasonably successful doing what they're doing. So I think that's what made Stan different. I think that's what made Will Eisner different. Kirby, I think, was just an, a dynamo of ideas. I mean, I don't think Kirby, re, you know, I don't know I don't know if you could say Jack Kirby reinvented himself. Jack Kirby explored. I think Jack Kirby was had an ongoing exploration of topics and themes that he'd always been interested in. You know, I think I think that Stan somehow figured out, you know, that he could and should rebrand himself and the company and make himself synonymous with the company. I think that's what makes him outstanding in, in, in that field. I mean, even, you know, there are some people who had very long careers just because they were competent or, or even gifted artists or writers or, or editors. But I mean, you don't think of them in this decision to become somebody else i think i think it was a combination of just stan's natural inclination i think it was also that his office was on madison avenue mm -hmm. i think i think when you're surrounded by don draper and other you know by mad men types <laughs> and you sort of see oh look oh look everything you know look you can rebrand toothpaste you can rebrand breakfast you know i mean there's you can present and change how people and things are shown to the public and sold I, I think that was I think being literally on Madison Avenue was was an important part of that and I think also when he started getting letters from people like Roy Thomas and Jerry Bales he just sort of had a realization like oh there's this audience of college educated adults and while they won't ever haha become our main audience definitely somebody we can appeal to and you know, look, whether did Joan ever really say to him, why don't you do comics the way you want to do it? Well, I'm guessing she said it to him like a thousand times. I'm guessing there was not one conversation, but I'm thinking it was just something, you know, uh, you know, Marvel had almost disappeared uh, just before that happened. Mm -hmm. And then you have... I think maybe the sudden death of Joe Manili was was a wake up call to Stan. Like, wow, right. we're not going to be here forever, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think a lot of different factors, you know, and something about him. I mean, that's why he was Stan Lee because he didn't retreat uh, into a shell. I think Eisner had a similar but different realization, you know, uh, which we can talk about uh, if you want. But Stan couldn't have done what he did without Kirby and without Ditko and without the other guy, but especially Kirby and Ditko. Mm -hmm. But I don't think, uh, but I don't think Marvel would have existed with, uh, without Stan either. I think, or and without Martin Goodman, willing to give thumbs up or thumbs down, or just to or decide he was going to be hands off with Stan. I mean, that's part of what's in, what's in the book. How complicated that relationship was. I mean, right. Goodman didn't just happen to be Stan's relative. That was, you know, a big part of 
of why Marvel is Marvel, you know, and, and, and the context, if you, you know, and Marvel also has the context of being part of Goodman's publishing empire, which is a strange and an oddball array of magazines and books that, that Martin Goodman published that Marvel was a part of and yet, uh, and yet with Stan, it became much, you know, its own thing. Yeah. I have one Stanley related question and then want to get to the other aspect of your career I'm interested in. In doing this book, have you gone back and read the other biographies that have come out in, in relatively recent years? Well, there's the Bob Batchelor book and there's the Raphael and Spurgeon book. What else? And, well, and sort of Stan's own. Right. They were very important books to read. Is there repetition in terms of do you go and look at the same archives and, and start from square one, or do you build upon the books that are previously done? And do you feel like you've covered things that weren't in those books? Yeah. Okay, wow. Those are it's funny because just the way I learned about kind of journalism in an oddball way from right now, I learned about writing biography in an oddball way by writing this book because you know suddenly I'm now going to biographers events and meeting biographers and reading a lot of biographies and reading about biographies and what is, you know, I I, I mean I, I mean a classic one that I I went to an event last year that was promoting a new two-volume, I think, biography, maybe, I forget if there's going to be a third or not, but at least a, a huge two-volume biography of Saul Bellow, right? Well, it turns out that the reason this biography of Saul Bellow, this two-volume biography exists, is because Saul Bellow's family didn't like the previous biography about Saul Bellow that somebody else wrote 10 years ago. <laughs> so what I've discovered is that Right. Let's say you go to a job interview and, and the guy says, tell me about your life. Or or you're being interviewed on a podcast by somebody and they say, tell me about your career. Well, there's a million different ways to approach it. Yes. And you're really, in some ways, creating, even unintentionally, maybe even thinking you're telling, quote unquote, the truth. There's a million ways to approach somebody's life. There's a million ways to approach and interpret the details of somebody's life. So... Have I discovered that Stan had a secret life as a as a spy and he was in you know and he was in disguise in Scandinavia for ten years? No. <laughs> I have not discovered that. But I think I have taken details of Stan's life, discovered new interesting details, and put together a narrative that is still Stan Lee's life, but has a unique take on it. I, you know, I mean, I think I think I have found details and people that other people have not covered, and given my insider point of view and whatever you know, whatever Danny Fingeroth intelligence uh, or stupidity I bring to the table, I've yeah. done that. I think if I've done my job right, I will have pissed off both the unquestioning Stan Lee haters and the unquestioning Stan Lee lovers. Oh, Almost good. certainly. So that's that's you know. So yes, you can't. The, the the basic building blocks of Stan's life, they're the basic building blocks of his life. But I think I bring, I've either discovered or intuited a lot of new things that other people haven't. Right, that's great. We are excited to read it. And we're, when, when can we expect it to come out? Is that set to be like November? Is, it's, is that set for, it's set for October. I mean, um, uh -huh. I'm, I'm still hoping October, but some, somewhere in the fall, you know, somewhere. Well, with plenty of time to do your holiday shopping. There you go. <laughs> Pre-order now. All right. All right, so let's let's talk about the few side things that you have done that are, are of great interest. Um, one of them was: Are you still the programming director for Wizard World, or how no, long I did am, that last? I, I, that lasted four years. That lasted from 2013 to 2017. I was not the programming director. I was the director of the Danny Fingeroth panels. So, ah, uh, okay. Because so you were emceeing a lot of panels at the time, right? Yes. Well. 
the, the I had done their show. They had a they had a wizard show in New York in 2013, and I had done a couple of panels there. And the guy who was running their programming, a guy named Chris Jansen, said, "Would you like to come on the road with us?" And so we and and do a lot of panels. So we worked out a deal, and and that's uh, what I did. And and I did out anywhere from six to fifteen panels. <laughs> every mm-hmm. show. I think Wizard wanted to up their game in panels, you know, and 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 uh, and, and Chris had worked at Sa- at the San Diego Con in programming. So he, you know, he was then they hired him and he hired me to as I did, you know, became almost a marathon, you know. I mean, obviously the 15 panels would be for some of their four-day shows like Chicago or uh, Philadelphia. Uh but the yeah, the idea was that because I knew the history and I knew the people, I could get people to their shows and to do panels who they might not ordinarily have done a wizard show, or if they had done a wizard show, they might not ordinarily have done a panel or done any show, you know. So, what was so the I, single greatest panel, wizard panel, that you ever put together or did? Wow. Well, look, one of the wackiest things. You know Ben Catcher's work? Yeah, sure. Okay, mo- a lot of people don't. Ben is a genius. As you can tell, because I believe he got one of those MacArthur Genius Grants. Ben is best known for a, for a strip he did uh, in in a New York paper, and probably for a bunch of independent uh, papers called Julius Knippel, real estate photographer. But he's also done tons of other stuff, and he's got a very offbeat, idiosyncratic, uh, hilarious point of view on the world. But he's not somebody you'd expect at a superhero convention. Wizard allowed me to invite him and bring him to the uh, one of their New Orleans shows, and Ben was like, "Hey, a free trip to New Orleans." <laughs> <laughs> so Ben Catcher uh, came to the show, and he and Dean Haspiel did a panel where they read from their work uh, as it was projected on screen. So that was pre- that was pretty for, you know for the 15 people in the audience. That was really uh, great. I did a lot of history panels. There's a lot more interest in comics history than you'd think. I would do like a history, you know, 1942 in comics or whatever, on a Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, and you think, well, nobody's coming to that, and suddenly there's 300 people showing up in the room, you know? And what I would do is I'd get people, either other historians, every city that's big enough to have a comic convention the size of a wizard show is big enough to have a university. And every university of that size always has a couple of people who have tenure who are teaching comics so they can teach whatever the hell they want and they're thrilled to come and like be asked to be on a panel you know at a convention with comic artists and and comic editors and so 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 i'm trying to you know i'd say not a wizard show the wackiest panel i ever put together that i couldn't moderate a few years ago was i put together a panel that had Todd McFarlane and Raina Helgemeier on it, and then it was it was during my own kids' bar mitzvah, so I oh that's funny I couldn't, I couldn't uh-huh. go to it, but but uh-huh. I was very proud of like holy cow who else who who else ever put Todd and Raina on a panel together? That's that that is such a weird combination. But but they both told me they loved it, you know. Paul Le- I mean Paul Levitt's moderated, so how bad could it be? And they were I'm embarrassed, I'm not remembering exactly who else was on it, but it was but uh, you know I I did a lot of how-to panels, I did panels with Barbara Slade and Tom DeFalco. What my strategy was, you know, Wizards and whatever. Oh, I've, I've done my famous Bob Dylan comics. When Prince died, I did a Prince in comics with Dean Haspiel and, and Alex Lubet, who was a local Minneapolis music and comics and Judaic Studies scholar. So Wizard, I have to say, it was very uh, open to me. Of course, I'd have to do, you know, and I was glad to. Here's Stan Lee, here's Rob Liefeld. You know, those were those are sort of no-brainers as far as comic conventions, but a Prince in comics, a Bob Dylan in comics, a, oh, you know, Actually, one of my favorites was in Louisville. 
So whatever town Wizard was going to be in, I'd look at a map and I'd go, what comics professionals or academics or historians or whatever live within 50, 100, 150, 200 oh, that's miles cool. of this city? So Louisville, I'm going, Louisville, Louisville. I went, oh, so, let me look up the Louisville, Louisville Sluggers, right? I mean, that was, I mean, Louisville's a lot of different things and a lot of angles. But I thought, well, Louisville Sluggers has a museum. And the guy mm-hmm. who curates a museum, based on my research, seems interested in comics. Cut right. to, here's my baseball and comics panel at the Wizard World Louisville show, you know, with the curator of the Louisville Slug Museum who brought in all sorts of cool artifacts from like an animation show they were having and to tie it into my other obsessions brought in like some of their autographed uh, bats, including a Louisville Slugger autograph by Bob Dylan, you know, right? That was, yeah. Oh, that's great. So that was, that was, that was maybe one of, one of my favorites was that baseball and comics panel. So location really does matter actually on these things. In certain things, I mean, if you know, let's face it, because if somebody lives in that town, I mean, you don't have to pay for airfare and hotel for them, you know, <laughs> you know, and they're there and they have this expertise. So and they're thrilled to do it. So why not? That's cool. So let's talk about the night with ones that you, you did as well. You mentioned uh, I, I mainly want to hear about uh, for selfish reasons. I want to hear about Jules Pfeiffer. Uh, that was sort of my pathway into comics in a lot of ways. Uh, was, me uh, too. You know, well, uh, not really, not my pathway in, but my pathway into the history. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I just relished that book when it came out. Um, I was uh, reading comics already, but that that book made me aware of so much before uh, right. Marvel. Uh, right, yeah, everybody. I think that was you know that that was an eye opener for for me. That that was the holiday gift for that year for 1965. Was anybody who's interested in comics? That yeah. was the book you wanted. Now, um, was Pfeiffer there? Uh, was he on stage with you? Yeah, 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 yes. <laughs> well, no, uh, I I went to a personal look at Pfeiffer. I think in San Diego, and Paul Levitz was there by himself because uh, Pfeiffer wasn't able to to come at the time. Well, I mean, it's funny, you know. Actually, uh, I shouldn't have left because you know, just a couple of years ago, I did a thing with Pfeiffer and it was via Skype, you know, which was so, so that's, that's why I, I, I take back my derisive laughter, you know, that, uh, <laughs> for that particular one, because he had moved out of Manhattan, but then he was still living in Manhattan. It's very funny because somehow with all my contacts, nobody I knew knew how to get a hold of, of Pfeiffer. I mean, at least I couldn't find anybody. It's, you know, so I ended up finally somebody said, well, you know, he's got a website, just send an email to his I don't know again I don't know why I didn't think of that but I sent an email to his assistant and his assistant said at least at that point I think Jules now does do email but they said you have a better chance if you send him a fax so I sent him a fax and I dropped Will Eisner's name and I said I did this interview with Eisner it's been reprinted a lot and five minutes later he called me and it turned out he lived like 15 blocks from where I was living but I just couldn't find the guy my favorite Pfeiffer I'll tell you about a different event because this is a, a, I think I mean, they're both funny stories but a couple of years later I got him to be you know and I, and I also interviewed and the reason I was looking for Jules was interviewing him for disguise as Clark Kent so I became, of course I, be, I became you know somewhat friendly with him and uh, when I was early on in my relationship with the, with the Will Eisner the foundation and studio I was doing a night about Will Eisner at Columbia University, you know, through Karen Green and 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 her and the and and also Jeremy Dauber, who was kind of the go-to comics people at Columbia. And so I think I'd sent Jules an email or a fax, but I hadn't heard back from him. Well, I'm in the cab on the way to the presentation, and Pfeiffer called me and says, "I'm coming to your thing tonight," which I immediately got horribly nervous. And I was glad I didn't know before that because I would have been horribly nervous 
you know, for however long before uh, I knew. So, so I'm there, and I'm, and I'm doing my talk, and I know my Eisner pretty well, and I'm, you know, uh, blah, 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 you know, here's my opinion, here's this, blah, 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 here's this, you know, and, and, and I always do, a, what, one thing I do with most of my panels and presentations is elaborate PowerPoint slideshows, you know. I found that that's, especially for a visual medium like comics, duh, it's a, you know, it's good to do. So I'm going on about the classic spirit story, 10 minutes, you know, what's 10 minutes in a man's life? And Pfeiffer raises his hand and says, I wrote that story when I was 17. <laughs> I go, and I go, oh, okay. You know, I mean, I hadn't known that. And then, of course, all the rest of the questions about that were directed to Jules. So I said, you know what? I'm going to sit down. And Jules, why don't you come up here and answer these questions? Because clearly, they're not questions for me. They're for, you know, for you. So that was, you know, so that was, that was, that was a very funny moment, you know. Like, mm-hmm. I wrote that story when I was 17. The thing at the Yivo Institute as part of that three uh, nights, uh, Comics and the Jewish American Dream, I knew him less well uh, at that point. You know, again, I did my homework, and I was starting to ask him questions. And he says to me, if you're just going to read questions, what do I need you for? I can just read the question. I went, okay. And I literally <laughs> threw the questions away and we just kind of winged it from there. And it was great. You know, it was, uh, but that, that was, you know, that was, that was up there with the moment with the Al Jaffe night when, again, I had, you know, Al and I had met before. We talked about what we were going to discuss. But I asked some questions that as soon as it was out of my mouth, I knew it was a stupid question. And Al gave me some smart ass response, which gave me the chance to say, ladies and gentlemen, I've just gotten a snappy answer to a stupid question. You know, <laughs> that was that was that was that was a, a great moment in that series. Well, you know, I think I learned my lesson luckily through somebody else's. I was invited to be on a panel somewhere. I don't want to get too specific. The person was very nice, and they, you know, they seemed, you know, reasonably passionate about comics. But it was me and Joe Kubert and three or four others. I mean, it was a hell of a panel, except for me. You know, but it was really. And then the woman gets up and her question basically was so graphic novels <laughs> that was it <laughs> that's pretty much it you know? open-ended uh, yeah and, okay and you know i mean i'm being a little i'm exaggerating a little but it was not uh, so from that i i mean it was fine because we were all you know blabbermouths and you know it turned, you know, it turned out fine but but i never wanted to do that to anybody if i ever did or ever do do a panel or i don't know the topic i say that at the beginning i just say i don't you know here's something that i don't know as much about as i wish i did but i try to do i mean you know with the miracle of the internet it's it, it it's hard to have any excuse to come into to a panel with no and not know anything about the topic you know mm-hmm. yeah so so pfeiffer was Pfeiffer. you know you i mean jules was hilarious and funny and you know and i and i've done a bunch of, of events with him and and really i mean if you've seen Pfeiffer, you know, he doesn't need a moderator. You know, I mean, it's nice that he agrees to have a moderator, but he's not exactly a guy who doesn't have a lot to say and is not a self-starter. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, you know, got a lot of opinions and he's, and he's very funny about expressing them. You know, he's interesting. He's kind of like Stan in that way in that he, his range of people that he's known and worked with is so vast and deep and goes into so many different corners of popular culture, you know, that, that it's, that it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a remarkable to go from, you know, Will Eisner to Robert Altman to, you know, to kids' books to, you know, to everything. He just, the, the, and, oh, his <laughs> political <laughs> cartoons. The 40 and, years of the Village Voice, right? I mean, that's what mm-hmm. a career. Holy cow. And now he's, now he's doing graphic novels, and they're fun. I mean, Kill My Mother and things like that. He just never stops. It's, it's amazing. 
and the last one, if you read the third part, it's a real, it's a, it's a real, I don't want to give away too much, but it's very, uh, I mean, all his work, obviously, I mean, he has, has, uh, you know, especially this, he talks about having Eisner on his shoulder, but especially the third part is very Eisner referential and, and deferential. Uh, oh, and Monroe, I mean, he just, you could yeah. go on. And he does, I think, once a month, every two weeks, something for a tablet magazine online. He does a, like a bi-weekly or a monthly strip. In a tablet, mm-hmm. say, uh, Super active. a Jewish, a Jewish-oriented website, and I, I would, Im- I would imagine that stuff will be collected at some point. Yeah, that's I think where he and Eisner and and Stan and and and, and a couple other people keep reinventing themselves and keep trying to do new things. And mm-hmm. you know, that was a, that was a big thing with Stan, where you know, once in a while he would do an old timers panel, but he really resisted that. He much preferred to be on panels with young people talking about new stuff. You know, oh, that's cool. I mean, it's inevitable who he was that he somebody was going to ask him. He would talk about Marvel, but he really resisted being catalogs an old timer. And, and I, I think I think Eisner, Pfeiffer, they're just people who uh, you know, Jaffe. No matter how old they get, they have more ideas. I ran into Al Jaffe on the street. I mean, I think I was going to see him, but he was you know, I think he was he was coming back from the hardware store because somebody had given him a piece of cork, and he said, "I'm just." I just bought some lumber because somebody gave me this cork, so I'm going to make a cork board out of it, which is like, you know, Al, you could buy for 10 bucks, you could buy a cork board. But, but for, I, I had an amazing conversation with Al literally the other day. I went to visit him. I said, did you ever think of maybe, you know, just coming up with ideas for fold, for fold-ins and letting other people execute them? You just supervise. And he said, well, no, because the fun for me is doing the execution. I mean, having the idea is fun, but I love doing, you know, it's, a, it's wonderful that somebody, you know, that old, that experience is like still thinking that way and I know he's got notebooks full of ideas that if he lives to be 200 he'll never have time to execute right to do it all you know so there are some people like that that are just I don't know if it's genetic or what but it's just amazing I'm going to close with Eisner, but I wanted to ask you about your experiences uh, teaching comics as well, because you've done stuff at, I mean, both lecturing and speaking at things like uh, Smithsonian and the uh, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but you've also taught things uh, both online and at the New School and and other places. Can you just talk about teaching comics? Teaching <laughs> comics is, is great fun. I'd say the most interesting thing about teaching comics. Some of my students, I can't, uh, I can't think of names. I'm not, you know, uh, offhand. Have gone on to be professionals. Mostly, I taught writing. Sometimes I teach history. It's a lot of fun. You know, I would say that the most interesting change. I haven't taught for a few years, just because I've been busy with other things, and also because it pays so badly, which I'll talk about in a minute. What's interesting is when I first started teaching, I was in New York University in their adult ed program. A wonderful writer named Michael Zam hired me. He's written that Joan Crawford and Betty Davis show that was on and other TV shows. It's through the through the writing and TV department at, at NYU. When I first started teaching, it would be, and maybe because people knew me mostly from Marvel, it would be like in a class of 16 students, there would be 15 guys and one woman. And as the years went on, I, started, I also did a lot of teaching, you know, ran the education department and did a lot of uh, work, including co-curating a couple of shows at the Museum of Comic and Cartoon Art. By the time I got near the end of my uh, teaching years, which may happen again, I don't know, the classes were half to two-thirds women. So I thought that was a very interesting change. Hmm. You know, maybe maybe it was because of where it was. I don't know. And I did a lot of master classes that I ran at, 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 at MOCA and, and did co-ventures with MOCA and NYU. Mm-hmm. So I had Howard Chaikin and Jamie DeMattis and DeFalco and, oh, uh, cool. you know, Jamal Igle, uh Joe Cazada. You know, I've... I, 
probably in the past 10, 15 years, I probably hosted or ran or whatever you want to call it or moderated like 500 events. It's a little wacky. So teaching, I would just say it's criminal how badly teachers are paid, you know, especially adjuncts. This is one of the great... Yes, adjuncts especially. I do that a lot myself. This is one of the great scandals in the educational system in this country that people, you know, I, I mean, I enjoyed it and my students seemed to enjoy the classes and but the money was so, you know, you know, at least if I wasn't making money doing right now, at least I owned it, you know, or co-owned it with, with, with Tomorrow's and it had that pride of ownership and, and that the magazine was a complete, you know, completely my vision. But to teach somewhere and put, if you teach, you know, if, you, if you're doing it right, you're putting in a lot of hours, not just the hours in class, but the hours of prep. And then if, if it's a script writing class where you're reading and critiquing the scripts and, and man, I think it, I think it ends up for most adjuncts, you know, well below minimum wage. So, I mean, that's yeah. really one of the main reasons I stopped doing it. It was enjoyable and it would look, and, and it and it is a nice thing to have on my resume. And, and there are a number of, you know, Danny Fingeroth trained writers out there in the professional world, which I take pride in. But holy cow, the money was so bad. <laughs> so, so on that depressing note, let's move on to Eisner. Specifically, Eisner Weeks, if you could explain what that is and your role in that. Will Eisner's um, legacy is controlled by his nephew, Carl Gropper, and Carl's wife, Nancy. They are the people who run the Eisner Foundation, the Eisner Studio. Pretty much any you know, thing you see relating to Will Eisner has to be approved, and they came up with. So they probably 10 or 12, maybe more years ago, uh, I'm not sure exactly who came up with it. It was something called Will Eisner Week, which is the period, Will, Will's birthday, Will was born on March 6th, 1917. We have this thing called Will Eisner Week that celebrate Will Eisner, the le- his legacy, the spirit, the graphic novel in general, free speech as a concept and as a, an idea in practice. And so they brought me on because I had done an event for them in New York and I'd gotten, I think I mentioned, I found Will's through a friend of mine who worked with him. My, my editor actually at Continuum had also worked with a guy who just died a few, uh, within the past couple of months who was Will's, high, literally his best friend in high school. And so I found him and I got Chris Couch who was who had been Eisner's editor at one point at Kitchen Sink, and I put together a couple other people. Oh, Danny O'Neill. I put together a panel in New York, and I met uh, Carl and Nancy there, and they uh, asked me to be the chair of Will Eisner Week. So, what I basically it's what I do best, which is nag people. So, what I do is I send out emails and letters and phone calls and say to people all over the country, "Here's Will Eisner Week. If you have any." interest or regard for Will or the work he did or graphic novels in general. Can you do an event, teach a class, do a radio show, do a podcast, hint, hint, you know, that you will brand as Will Eisner Week and we will promote it. And, and the idea is to keep Will Eisner's legacy, both his, you know, literal legacy of his graphic novels and his comics going, but also the, you know, Will as an evangelist for and a lover of and a spreader of the word about comics, you know. Um, so, that, so that's a Will Eisner's Week, which it really, I think we peaked at Will's centennial year, which was in 2017, where we had close to 100 events worldwide in, you know, live. On- wow. And so I'll put out the word now. It's coming up. If anybody listening or if you guys want to do something relating to Will Eisner and Will Eisner Week in that period, I mean, we're happy to have people do stuff relating to Will anytime, but especially in that period, email me at danny at dannyfingeroth.com or go to the willeisner.com website. You know, would love to keep Will's 
work and his legacy in mind. So that's what Will Eisner Week is about. Alex, yeah. let's bookmark that now and let's think, let's talk about it. Absolutely. That's exciting. Danny, we, uh, we wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for the time you put in for these interviews because we, we really wanted to do here was one to show people what an interesting career and uh, life that you're living because you've done a lot and you've been part of a lot and you've uh, uh, met a lot of interesting people and at the same time wanted to give people your insight into different things that happen in comic history but also to learn more about the different books you've written. We're really thankful for the time that you put into this interview with us. Well, I appreciate the interest. I just wanted to mention I will be at the San Diego Con, and I'll be, oddly enough, doing a number of panels there, so come check them out. Thank you, gentlemen, for all your time. This has been a really fun episode of the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with Jim Thompson, finishing up the interview of the life and times of Danny Fingera. Thank you for joining us today, Danny. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. The best is yet to come. 